Good morning, Lansing. It's Saturday, it's 9 a.m., and the pet experts are in the building. This is the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS and 1320WILS.com. Now, here are your hosts, Rick Pruce and Lee Cohen. Welcome, pet keepers, to this week's MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. I'm your host, Lee Cohen, here with my co-hosts, the pet experts themselves, Mr. Rick Pruce from Pruce Pets. Good morning, Rick. Hey, Lee. How you doing? I'm doing terrific. Thank you. And we have with us again this week, Dr. Will Schultz, uh, formerly from Schultz Veterinary Clinic. Welcome back, Dr. Schultz. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's our pleasure to have you. And, Doc, I didn't want you to feel lonely in here because Rick and I are still working guys, but for you retired guys, I know you're sometimes looking for people to hang out with, and we found someone who I think would be perfect for you because every time he and Rick have talked, I basically was able to take a nap during the show and let the two of them continue on, but I think you're going to hit it off great. It's Jay Hemdahl, who has recently retired from the Toledo Zoo and Aquarium. And Jay Hemdall is still there, so some of us that go into retirement still keep jobs. I was I was moving lumber all morning this morning. So, okay, so so you, you you still have jobs, but evidently Jay is still there as a, uh, a, a, a what do you what you call it? A, well, a helper, an assistant. Uh, yeah, well, the, 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 when you run a zoo, there's lots of things that have to get done, and and the uh, the the main guy, the director of the zoo, knows that Jay has a lot of talents, and so. Uh, trying to keep the zoo kind of running smoothly. Uh, in his case, he's uh, he's going to he's been spending time making sure that the zoo stays AZA compliant. We'll talk more about that when we get into the show. I'm anxious to hear about that because Potter's Park Zoo is an AZA certified uh, uh, zoo. Uh, so you know we have that in our community, and so there's a number of. Organize, uh, places out there that have animals. And a lot of places, I'm sure, most, because they're exposed to the public, do a good job in keeping their animals. But when you're AZA uh, and AZA compliant, you know, there's just something that you can stand behind that that, that, that goes a, typically is regarded as above and beyond it's, all others. It's like the good housekeeping seal. I mean, exactly. it's, it's, it's just, right. it, it That's right. signifies right. that they are standouts. And with Jay, he's like the ultimate Mr. Quality Control guy. Yeah. To, yeah. to, to make yeah. sure. So, uh, and, and then he count. also spends a lot of time uh, talking to the general public. And uh, this is where he and I connect because he's been in the pet store business. He's been, you know, one of the best fish stores in Ann Arbor back years ago was a place called Age of Aquarium. You had mentioned yeah. that you Under, remember seeing that yeah, uh, back on, when you were yeah. down in your your years back in uh, yeah. what were the years that you U were at M, college? Late the late sixties at U of M. Yeah, undergrad. yeah. So um, I, I'm I've always connected with Jay, and Jay and I have always connected together because he's he's always been interested in helping people understand the hobby, and honestly, the only way we can survive. As a pet store, yeah. as a fish store, you know, here in Lansing, Michigan, is simply connect with the public and make sure they're actually on the right road to making sure that hobby isn't something that is difficult and troublesome and animals are in peril. But instead, if you just take the time, care, and compassion to make sure every encounter with the people means 
helping them, giving them information, and 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 making them discover what we've discovered over the years, like there is a right path to take care of animals, then then we're doing our job. And that's what Jay does now uh, with an organization called Reef to Reef. So online interaction uh, that, that, that doesn't just serve the Lansing public, but serves, you know, the world, the world. Yeah. So he's, he's in a position, a unique position that gives Lots of guidance to individuals that want to jump into the aquarium hobby. And, uh, and it's educated guidance. It's like if you've got a problem in Lansing, you call Rick. Um, yeah. If Rick's got a problem, Rick knows who to call. Yeah. No, yeah. Uh, Jay and I have had plenty of conversations. If something troubles me and I can't figure it out, he's one of those resources that we'll call and talk to. And Jay's had some uh, – has, has books on – uh, fish health and fish diseases, and is currently working on a fish disease book. Uh, so, if you want to, if you want to hear from somebody that you know has a great uh, amount of respect in this trade, the hobby of fish keeping, uh, this is the guy. And even if you do have fish in aquariums that don't have problems, you need to be able to recognize a problem when it's coming. Right, right. for sure. Well, to me, the best thing is that Jay Hamdahl is someone who gives free advice to the public. If you go to his site and you ask him, uh, it's not like you're bothering him. He's purposely seeking people with questions, and he's going to give them intelligent answers. And that's what's going to happen today over the next hour. We're going to ask questions, and he's going to give us intelligent answers right here on the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS. We're back here, and we have with us on the line a returning guest. It's Jay Hemdahl, who is recently retired, well, the last couple of years, but he was the general curator at the uh, Toledo Zoo and Aquarium. And my guess is, Jay, you've probably got your hands full with lots of other things because you never struck me as a guy who was going to be heading for the beach chair and <laughs> an afternoon cocktail. Tiki that, bar, that's is, it. Go is, to the tiki bar. Is that correct? <laughs> that's right. Um, I The one thing I found about retirement was I just can't seem to to – slow down. I, I, I really enjoy working. Um, I've always loved my work, and uh, so I've kept going. I'm still working part-time at the Toledo Zoo, and then I've been doing some outside things as well. Uh, why don't you discuss a little bit about, let's just give a quick review of what other things you're doing specifically outside of the zoo. So, yes, I'm, I, I really, for, for decades, I've really really like to help home aquarium keepers, people that have fish tanks in their home. I think it's, it's, it helps the hobby. It helps these people be more successful, and it helps the fish themselves. If yeah. people can keep their fish alive, right. the fish are doing better. Right. And, right. gosh, I, I just always uh, enjoy trying to help people with their home aquarium problems through, oh, I used to teach classes at a community college. Um, I worked online. I even wrote some computer software years ago to try to help with their aquariums. I'm currently working as the uh, fish disease moderator for a large website called Reef to Reef. And, and is this mostly saltwater, freshwater? What kind is this? It's mostly marine aquariums. There, um, there's a lot of overlap. As you can imagine, fresh or saltwater is kind of a, of a random difference. I mean, you know, there's also something called brackish water, which is 
salty. So it's more of a continuum. Right. A lot of fish diseases <clears throat> have counterparts in both fresh and salt. But it's primarily a home reef or saltwater aquarium group. And it's what they call peer-to-peer. So it's, it's reef aquarists helping each other try to get through things. Um, however, when it comes to fish disease, the answers to the problems are so critical that we need to sort of sort of work that out and, and it's become more of a of a group effort of some advanced aquarium keepers helping people themselves rather than one aquarist helping another because they might give wrong information. I, I think lot, go ahead. Oh, there's lots of different ways to keep aquariums, but with, when it comes to fish disease, there's oftentimes only one or two workable treatments. We want to make sure they get steered in the right direction. We, we need the magical solution. There's nothing worse than looking at a fish that goes down, and there's nothing more exciting to take a fish that's in poor repair, and, and, and it's back swimming around, and it's being fed and taken care of, and you get another lease on life when it's done right. right. So uh, I think for the listening audience, uh, I think, when I think of Jay Hemdel, I think of not just uh, what you're doing now, or even as the curator of the, uh, or as the what, what did you describe your last position at General the curator. general cur- curator? Yeah. But you've been much more specific with fish. Um, give us a quick synopsis of uh, Jay and his uh, professional exposure to fish and fish keeping. Well, I still rely on what I learned working in pet stores in Ann Arbor, Michigan, back in the late 1970s, early 1980s. That's where I got my start. Um, you worked with thousands of fish every day and hundreds and hundreds of customers mm-hmm. and the problems that they face, the challenges the successes like if they were breeding fish things like that it's really trial by fire you learn a lot that way <laughs> um and then i went to college and studied marine biology and and then got into public aquariums which are just you know one step different than than pet stores a lot of the same fish a lot of the same suppliers and uh, I've just always worked with fish my whole life. Yeah, we, I've always noticed as employees have gone to public aquariums, uh, one, they tend to be uh, given, I, I guess, an upper hand of uh, in, the, in, in the hiring process because they have this experience. And the one thing that's always a common comment is, uh, you know, uh, public aquariums are basically like an aquarium, just, just in a much larger, larger uh tank size, larger equipment, larger pumps, but it, the, the principles are the same. Exactly. Uh, you know, and, and, and what you're saying about uh, pet store experience, when I interview uh, tentative, you know, new hires to work in the aquarium, one of the questions I ask is, have you had a home aquarium? And when they say yes and tell me about it, I know that person's really interested in fish. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Great. Yeah, but in fairness, I don't know many people at home who have like a whale or, <laughs> oh, <come on. laughs> event, uh, or anything like that. So you do get into some bigger uh, animals. Like, no hammerhead sharks at home. Huh? Yeah. I, I do have a question um, or, or more of like, a, you know, I want to hear it from Jay. Why would one, why should someone, maybe parents looking at their child and thinking about giving them some guidance in life or a child that's begging the parents for an aquarium. Why should, why would one want to consider having an aquarium, whether it's fresh or salt or brackish? What, what's, what's the upside? Because it's something that you've been passionate about all your life. Give us a general idea what you find 
in the idea of fish keeping? Well, I, I think fish are uh, unique pets because they still will instill a sense of responsibility in the person. They have to care for your animals. In fact, the fish are 100% reliant on your care that you give them. Uh, there's no outside influences when you have them in an aquarium. Um, but yet, the, the demands are not quite as great as a dog or even a cat um, in terms of the care and, and time you have to spend with them. Aquariums are a little bit of work sometimes. Uh, you have to change the water. You have to feed the fish. But it's kind of like a sort of a enclosed ecosystem that can teach young people about biology. Um, and, and, and sort of you're recreating a wild environment in your home in many cases, and especially with the reef aquariums. And that teaches a lot about biology. It teaches, uh, you know, them responsibility, obviously. And, uh, and it's a lot of fun at the same time. Yeah, that I I will agree with that. So good job. I appreciate that. Uh, one thing that I always find fascinating uh, in the years that you and I have been doing this is that at one time we were in a a scenario where the idea of keeping a, a a live coral alive in a tank was was just a kind of a fantasy, right? <laughs> uh, we go back that far. Mm-hmm. And what I love about it now, uh, like for instance, we have a giant reef tank at uh, LCC or. Plenty of these, I'm sure you're familiar with plenty of schools that have reef tanks or or just your local pet store that now has corals. You know, a young child no longer in the Midwest grows up not knowing what something looks like other than a skeleton of a coral. Um, maybe you could comment a little bit on that. Yeah, so the live coral aspect of marine aquarium keeping, you're basically recreating a coral reef in your home. That has... Uh, so popular in recent years, it's starting to outshine uh, marine fish-only aquariums uh, by some extent. Yeah. And there's all sorts of other animals that live with the coral, hermit crabs and snails and small shrimp, and you can keep those in with some fish, and and it's just a, just a, a great way to have... And some people look at that as living furniture. Uh, the corals themselves can be really beautiful. The, uh, so the aesthetics of that aquarium can really be a focal point in a room. At the same time, you're learning about the biology, and then there is a current group of marine aquarium keepers that collect rare corals. And I've seen corals selling for thousands of dollars. It's just uh, amazing. And some of them are very beautiful, but they're all rare. Um, and then there's common corals. So if you want to have just a nice reef aquarium, you go for the more common species, the more easily grown species. But then some people collect corals just like other people collect postage stamps or coins. Do you do you see that in in the day and age now where all we're reading all over the press is all the coral reefs are dying with this high ocean temperatures? Are you having difficulty as a, a hobbyist to get coral now? Or are they you raising know, their own coral <laughs> and then selling it that way? A lot of it is um, being cultured. There are uh, companies that culture coral, both in the United States and overseas. There's, there are organizations in Indonesia that culture coral in the ocean uh, to sell to home aquariums. Uh, land-based coral irrigation systems, a lot of these home aquariums make their own corals and trade with one another or sell them back to pet stores. And I've, I've found that Corals are actually becoming more available, uh, not less. Even though coral reefs in the wild are undergoing tremendous, tremendous 
impacts from all sorts of things like water pollution and water temperature. You may have seen the reports just this week in the Florida Keys in the Back Bay area where water temperature has hit 101 degrees, which is hot tub temperatures, and that's not suitable for uh, corals to grow. Now, there's also a group of people um, with public aquariums and also uh, NOAA, which is the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, um, that are growing endangered corals from the Florida Keys on la- in land-based laboratories. And the idea then is that they can replant those corals in reefs where the damage has already been done to sort of backfill and, and try to regrow uh, corals where the reefs have been so severely damaged. And what they're doing is some of these corals have gen- unique genetics where they can withstand water temperatures a little bit better. And they're reproducing those corals and then putting them back out on the reef, and they're, they're doing a little bit better. That's awesome. Yeah, and uh, one thing I know that uh, kind of the holy grail of coral keeping is just the idea of, you know, when we think of, you know, growing corals, because we may start with an aquarium that has seven corals that are the size of our thumbs and become, you know, you end up with 20 corals the size of softballs. Um, Mm -hmm. The one thing that I find interesting is that we have finally met the holy grail in keeping in that we can actually spawn corals in captivity that, 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 and that's been the, the big, you know, at least from a research and, and replacement perspective, the numbers are a whole lot different. And, yes. Um, so there's, there's what they call sexual reproduction, um, where there's an egg and a sperm, and the coral grows from that. And then there's what you call fragmentation, and that's what most home aquarists do. You break off a little bit of a piece of coral, and it grows into a new colony. But the actual reproduction of coral allows for those genetics to be managed. Because when you break off a piece of coral and grow it separately, you're, you're making a clone of the original animal. But when you mix uh, a male and female uh, element together, then you can connect the genetics of two different corals, and that can be managed, and that's huge. They're doing that in the laboratories as well, yeah. And what do they do to stimulate? Uh, okay, so yes, I take my little wood ch- or my uh, chisel, and I can break my coral off and have two of them. So, but I've got mm-hmm. these corals in a tank. Uh, this is going to sound a little weird because uh, I used to do dog reproduction, how do you know which is a boy and which is a girl coral? You know, that's a good question. I am not a, uh, a coral expert. My understanding is they are, they release both eggs and sperm at the same time, but they are not self-fertilizing. So they have to have another colony nearby in which to fertilize the eggs. So they're not a um, true hermaphrodite. I don't believe so, but don't quote me on that. Mm-hmm. I do know that uh, most... Well egg and sperm release in corals is tied in with the lunar moon phase. And right. that's important because if you're out, if you're a coral out on a reef and you're going to release, because it has all what they call external fertilization. Right. The egg and sperm reacts in the open water to form new, what they call planula larvae, which then settle out and become new coral. Well, you need to make sure that you're releasing your gametes at the same time as all the other corals. And so they seem to tie in with the moon phase. It's, it's like a lot of fish reproductions the same way. 
same thing, sure. Yeah. Well, I would say just get yourself a good colored LED light that's very dark and romantic. <laughs> Put some Barry White on and see what your corals do. <laughs> I think that must be the plan, that, the way that it was intended. We're speaking this morning with Jay Hemdahl. And, Jay, I just would like to ask you uh, about taking you back uh, through your days at setting up things at the Toledo Zoo and Aquarium. And I'd like to find out from you, what are the accomplishments that you are the most proud of uh, from those days that you did to make a difference? So, uh, And that's what we're going to talk about after the break. Uh, again, we're talking with Jay Hemdahl right here on 1320 WILS. For the latest news and information on animal care, it's the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. Here are your hosts, Rick Pruse and Lee Cohen. It's 9.35 and we're back here with the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. And we're talking this morning with Jay Hemdahl, who is the recently retired uh, general curator from the Toledo Zoo and Aquarium. And Jay, let's let's let you get, I, I don't want to call it a victory lap, but the truth is you were there for a very long time. You accomplished a great many things. But if you had to really ring up the thing that you are the most proud of, of all the things that you did, oversaw, participated in, what would it be? Well, I think pretty clearly it was the uh, 2015 reimagining of the aquarium building. Uh, It closed in 2012 and underwent a three-year renovation, reopening in 2015. That was a huge team effort for the Toledo Zoo staff. Um, It it required sacrifices in time uh, and hard work from from the entire zoo, but it brought the old Toledo Zoo Aquarium, which, you know, was not a bad facility. It was uh, uh, 40 exhibits in a, in a, a beautiful historic brick building, um, but it brought it up into the standards of a modern public aquarium with a 90,000-gallon reef exhibit and, and much larger exhibits. And, and, you know, that was, that was uh, obviously the, the biggest achievement in my career, um, and it, it turned out really well. And that's, you know, once that was done, managing that facility uh, was not nearly as challenging as developing it. And, and then I decided, you know, hey, I've, I've done what I needed to do. And we, our director at the Toledo Zoo and Aquarium was really thinking forward because we wanted to make sure there was good, what they call, secession planning. So I had been the curator at the aquarium before being the general curator for over 30 years. And if I just up and left, all that knowledge goes away. And I'm not saying I know everything, but I did have a lot of history. And so what they did was they promoted one of my aquarists to be the new aquarium manager. And then I work with her in case she needs it. Of course, she's been there almost 30 years or so. Um, but, but if she needs any background information, I'm still with the zoo part-time, and I can support her. And that makes a smoother transition, I think. That's a really lucky zoo to have you there to be able to do that. Yeah. That's not always so, the case. Yeah, so when you did this rebuild, I, I watched your interview the other night on uh, YouTube, by the way, for anybody out there. It's a really good interview just when you were doing it. So you had all these, what, 40 aquariums 
Where did they all go while you were rebuilding? Um, you can't just put them in your bathtub or in the swimming pool. <laughs> no, that's true. So we had, at the time, we had about 2,500 animals in the old aquarium. Wow. And <clears throat> what I did was we built an off-site holding facility because there were a number of animals there that were important collection animals or valuable or just, you know, had a lot of sentiment, sentimental value that we wanted to maintain um, for the new aquarium. And so those were moved to the off-site holding facility, and the aquarium staff took care of them there. And the other two-thirds are... Oh. Go, no, go, I was going to ask you, of all those, of every one of those 2,500, there's a favorite. No, no, just, just one-third of them, about one-third were moved over. The other okay. two-thirds were sent to other public wow. aquariums. right. And, and that was a real interesting time. So you, your listeners may not fully understand, but when you're an animal curator at a zoo, you have to have a huge number of contacts, and you're constantly moving animals back and forth for a variety of reasons. And, and a lot of us tend to become what they call horse traders. So you, you have lots yeah. of contacts. You, you've done favors for people in the past sending them animals when they needed it, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I called it, I just called in a bunch of favors. I, I, the Ripley's Aquarium helped out, the Amazing. Cleveland Aquarium. And what they did was they came to the Toledo Zoo with big transport vehicles, and, um, and we sent these animals out. Moving fish over the road is, is so time-consuming and expensive that we did not anticipate bringing those fish back. We brought different fish back, um, mm -hmm. but it, it, it worked out. The Shedd Aquarium in Chicago got some of the animals, and we were able to depopulate those remaining two-thirds of the animals in time to close the building. So there's no fish Amazing. left in the building. They cut the power, and that's when the renovation was able to start. Wow. Okay, so of all those fish, this is, the, this is a pressing question since I saw your interview. Which one's your favorite? We had a guess here earlier. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I get asked that question a lot. And my pat answer is, my favorite animal is the newest one that I've just acquired and I'm learning about, right? Um, <laughs> I like it. Because okay. that's always the most challenging, yeah. the most interesting. However, I do have a pet favorite, and that would be the flashlight. These are uh, uh, coral reef fish that live in caves during the day, and they come out on the reef at night, and they have luminescent glowing green bacteria underneath their eyes, and they blink on and off. And I've always had those. I had one when I lived in Chicago working through the Shedd Aquarium. I had one in a 10-gallon aquarium in my apartment. Uh, and, and now, you know, the, the Zoo Aquarium has got uh, a school of them on exhibit. We've, we've had them at the Toledo Zoo. Even in the old aquarium, we had flashlight fish. So they've been a perennial favorite. Awesome. And then there's always the um, uh, favorite from everyone is the octopus. And it's got to be inevitably with a curator of an aquarium for 30 years, there's got to be a good story out there in regards to an octopus. Well, there is a story, but it's, let me tell you, it's the story of the octopus in an aquarium that would crawl out of its tank at night into a nearby tank, eat some fish, yes. and then crawl back to its uh, original tank in the morning. I didn't and do it. <laughs> yeah, and the story is the curator would come in and see that the fish were disappearing out of the one tank, but couldn't figure out what was going on. Let me tell you, I researched that story, and I it's always what they call a friend of a friend. 
So, I, you know, everyone says, well, I heard it happening, but you can't actually pin it down. Right. The closest I could find, I went all the way back to England at the Brighton Aquarium in 1859, and there was a case where an octopus crawled out of one tank into the other tank and started to eat the fish. And that doesn't make as good of a story because right. it stayed in the tank with the fish. If you're an octopus and you crawl out of your tank into one with fish, you're going to stay where the food is. You're not going to go back to your original fishless tank. And so someone took that story and it just developed a, a mind of its own. And we even had one of our volunteers uh, at the Toledo Zoo and Aquarium telling a visitor, oh, yeah, that happened here. And I, it never did. I guarantee you it never did because. I've been there the whole time. <laughs> We've had giant octopus. Um, it makes for such a cool story, though. Yeah, right, right. Don't, don't they leave, like, a little slime path for a trail? <laughs> yeah, you would think so. You would think <laughs> you so. Would think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and keeping them in is a problem, no doubt about that. Oh, uh, one thing yeah, that uh, I've heard that uh, indoor-outdoor grass, uh, something that can tolerate the salt water around the perimeter, did just as well as, uh, as some kind of sealed-up enclosure. Is that true? That definitely is true. Um, we used turf um, around the edges of the aquarium. Giant octopus, their suction cups can't attach to it, and they just don't like the feel of it. It's too prickly, yeah. and it keeps them in. Right, um, if right. you try to keep them in with a solid lid, they will push lids. They will work at it until they can figure out a way. And they can squeeze through the, anything, anything, any hole larger than their beak. Uh-huh. which is at the center of all their arms, they can squeeze through given enough time. So yeah. a giant octopus that weighs 10 pounds might be able to squeeze through a, a two-inch diameter hole. Wow. Now, if you're handling these, I, when we were kids once, we were down in Mexico and they had an octopus, and they're handling it. Will they bite you? <clears throat> well, yes, they can bite. Um, they usually don't bite defensively. Usually. They don't bite in anger. Oh, right. Um, they bite. But all octopus secrete a poison when they bite, and that's to to kill their crustacean prey, the crabs that they eat. Um, however, there is an octopus in the Pacific Ocean, little tiny thing, a couple inches long, mm-hmm. that's called the blue ring octopus, and it's tan with electric blue circles all over its body, mm-hmm. and those are deadly. Uh, people see, will die within just a few minutes after being bitten by one. You see those all the time in the news in Australia. Somebody picks up a pretty octopus on the beach and has no idea how close to death they came. Exactly. I, and, and, and go ahead. Oh, there's my theory is many other species of small octopus, and we just don't know which ones could be that toxic. Yeah. So you got to be careful. Yeah. I, I do know that uh, back in the um, mid '80s when I would transship uh, Philippine fish, um, it was not uncommon to actually receive blue ring octopuses. And at that time, I was quite a bit younger and, and quite a bit less knowledgeable. And it took a shipment or two before I realized how harmful that animal was. Uh, fortunately for me, they would always arrive dead, um, oh. not, not tolerating the type of shipping stress that they would be going through. So, um, yeah. Did they not know they're putting them in there? Or oh, just... I think at that time it was just a different landscape. It was the Wild West. Uh, yeah. It's there's 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 a whole lot more thought that goes into what marine fish are being transported around the world now. They also have to have because health a, permits. Too. Well, there's yeah. there's a lot more exposure to good ideas. Remember the forever the Spanish dancer, uh, beautiful nudibranch that would just 
be the most gorgeous animal you could possibly imagine, but was impossible to keep in captivity. But we would see those with every shipment, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a whole different time then, and I think you know Jay will agree it it's not the same now as it used to be. Now uh, we need to take a break again, Jay. Uh, we'll come back, and I do want to talk a little bit about the. Um, your your role that you now play at the zoo and in keeping the zoo AZA compliant. Well, that's the conversation we'll have with Jay Hemdahl right here on 1320 WILS. Welcome back to the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS. Here are your hosts, Rick Bruce and Lee Cohen. Back here with the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show, and we've been talking this morning with Jay Hemdahl, who is recently retired from the Toledo Zoo and Aquarium. And Jay, Rick has a question to kick off the segment. So, Rick, uh, to you. Well, no, uh, you and I were chatting um, on the way in here, and we talked a little bit about your role that you now play predominantly as a part-time staff member at the Toledo Zoo and the role that they've put you in is a, a position that you described as what we thought the audience might find or you thought the audience might find as boring but from my perspective I don't think so uh, Potter's Park Zoo just went through and became uh, or continued their AZA compliance uh, by having an inspection and and making sure that the zoo is in tip-top shape and and your role now uh, basically is essentially keeping uh, the the Toledo Zoo uh, looking forward, looking forward to having the zoo there in a compliant manner and 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 continuing and 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 how important that is as a role. Can you talk a little bit about AZA compliance and what role you play there at the zoo in order to make that happen? Yeah, sure. Um, our zoo director um, takes. AZA, and that stands for Association of Zoos and Aquariums, that is an accreditation body that oversees the operation um, and quality of the operation of about 215 of the largest zoos and aquariums in the United States and Canada, and there's a few in in, uh, South America and Asia. Um, So the AZA has standards that you must meet if you are to be AZA accredited. And our director uh, is so concerned with that he decided to create this part-time position that I now fill where I try to manage accreditation requirements, all the rules, uh, regulations, make sure that we're in compliance with AZA, but also with USDA requirements, because that's another licensing organization that that applies to all zoos, not just AZA zoos. And, you know, the interesting thing is, is every October, the AZA comes out with revised standards. And sometimes the or change just a little bit. Other times, there's huge, you know, groundswell changes. Yeah. Uh, a few years ago, they changed everything about animal welfare to increase the importance of that at AZA facilities. And you need to be nimble enough to react to those changes because the changes come out in November, typically early November, and you must institute them that January or at least start oh. bringing them online. Right. So you have to be really reactive. Um, AZA does what's called accreditation inspections every five years of all the facilities. And the documentation that you need to supply them prior to their inspection is immense. All your records, all of your 
standard operating procedures, your protocols, everything has to be sent in there to review. Then they send a team on site for four days, and they go through everything in your facility. The Toledo Zoo uh, just went through that a months ago, uh, fifth year. Um, we will learn the outcome of it in September uh, at the AZA National Conference. But you know, we, we, I've been through a number of these, and we know we know that we're going to be accredited again because there were no major issues that Cited. the team found. Yeah. So we know, but it's not official till September. So that's when we'll make the official announcement. But that's a big deal. That's huge. Um, I spent the last two years, well, 18 months, working 20 hours a week towards that goal, along with all the other people at the Toledo Zoo, to bring the park up to its... That's the other thing I, I need to clarify. You get inspected every five years, and there is a strong tendency to, you know, the six months right before the inspection to clean everything up and get everything looking good. You but, you know, that's disingenuous. You've got to meet the standards... Day in, day out. Five days a year That's for the whole five years. Correct. Um, but you do want to put your best foot forward, so we did lots of extra cleaning. Sure. So, so uh, when they're looking at your zoo, are they looking at you keep water quality tables, you keep fish health tables, you keep nutrition? Um, what exactly, I guess, overall? They look at all aspects of your facility um, with a primary focus now on animal welfare, animal well-being, in the past, they would uh, also focus on the human amenities for your guests. For instance, the team would go into one of your uh, gift shops and, and look around. They would go to the cafe and order a meal and try it. They checked your bathrooms to make sure they're clean. And that's still important because obviously you need to supply those special amenities for your visitors. But the focus in, in the last 10 years or so has been more on health. They look Higher veterinary department. Um, they look to do what you know what what your standard operating are in case of an animal escape or some animal emergency, uh, and and just every aspect of the uh, operation maintenance is a huge issue. You know if you don't supply your, your grounds facilities with proper maintenance, then you know they fall into disrepair and then the animals aren't being cared for properly. So everything relates back to that. Do they? Do you find yourself in a position of I don't know, sharing thoughts, ideas with AZA as far as 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 future, you know, paths forward or where they might be missing or maybe being too um, overzealous? Uh, is there well, any feedback yeah. in that respect? Yeah, that's a really good point. The AZA is what's called a member organization. So the people that came to inspect us were directors and curators from other AZA facilities. They, they volunteer to do this. Wow. That's it. Our director at the Cleveland Zoo and Aquarium is actually on the AZA Accreditation Commission. That's a, I think it's a, a two- or three-year term that he serves. Now, I obviously will have to recuse himself when Cleveland Zoo comes up in September, but he's on the board that reviews all the accreditation packages and then votes yay or nay on accreditation of the facilities. Um, there is something, you know, like I said, the AZA raises the bar every year. They make their standards just more refined and, and more uh, developed every year. And raising the bar is great, but like you sort of alluded to, what happens if you keep raising the bar? Does it eventually get so high that no one can meet standards? Right. Um, it is certainly getting higher 
I think in the case of the AZA, what they've done is they've kind of raised the bar on one end, and then, like I talked about, the, the food service and the gift shop uh, has become less important since it, since the 1980s as it is. So they've raised the bar at one end, and they've given them a little bit more slack at the other end of the zoo operation. Um, but, yeah, you're right. And then there's, as far as feedback, yeah, a couple years ago there was a standard that they had that had a logic flaw in it. It, it had to do with a you know, processing of documents. And I contacted them, and they said, oh, yep, you're right, and they changed it right like that. Well, so, so very so uh, reactive. So the good, the good part, views. yeah, the good part. It's a peer review program. So you're basically working with other zoo directors or other curators like you. And the good part is for the public, you know, going to an AZA zoo, you have the top zoos in the country that you get to go visit. Yes. Yeah, that's a really good program then. Well, it sounds like it, but if I walk in and see an aquarium with a monitor on it and Max playing, then I'm going to think that they've taken a tad too far when it comes to the treatment that they're giving the animals in there because there's a lot that goes into it. But as you mentioned, Jay, sometimes uh, you can get a little overexcited, and that's where I'm thrilled to hear someone with your decades of experience is passing it on because I'll tell you my fear which is that we've got a lot of really, really talented people that are of a generation that they have either retired or they may be thinking about retirement. But bottom line is we need them to pass on their knowledge. So, Jay, thank you so much for coming on and joining us this week. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, it was our pleasure. We've been talking with Jay Hemdahl, formerly from uh, the Toledo Zoo and Aquarium, actually still with them, but in a part-time way. So, uh, Doc and Rick, it's been just a fascinating conversation. Uh, I'm still ready for more, but unfortunately, they're telling me in the control room that we can't, so sorry. Uh, But on behalf of our producer, Bruce Warner, and uh, Dr. Will Schultz and Rick Proust, my co-host, in the studio. This is Lee Cohen wishing all of you a great weekend, a great weekend. We'll talk next weekend on the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. Meantime, please, please take good care of your pets. Have a great week, everyone. Hey, got some ideas for a show? Questions? Maybe suggestions? Just email us, mmpets at 1320wils.com or message us on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash mmpets. Like us on Facebook. Go to Facebook.com forward slash MMPets. Upload your pet's picture or check out the silly pet photos that we put up there to get you through your day.